Father, we're just so grateful for uh, your word and, and just how we can trust your word to be absolute truth. And Lord, there's no need to vary from anything that you teach us in this word. And Lord, as you're going to show us today, there are a lot of teachers out there who do vary from your truth, who come up with what you call private interpretations, Lord, destructive heresies, things that might seem subtle and insignificant, but Lord, things that totally change what you're teaching in your word. And so, Lord, show us today the dangers of, of uh, uh, trying to, to take your word and apply it to our own personal lives in a way we want it to be applied and not the way you want it to be applied. Show us the dangers of twisting and turning your word. Show us the dangers of these false teachers, as you say, that are among us. So, Lord, help us to be diligent to, to, to study the word ourselves and to, to be sure that what we're hearing is truth. Father, uh, and most of all, uh, not so much, it's not so much the teachers that, uh, that uh, we hear that are false, Lord. It's sometimes our own false doctrine that gets us into trouble. And so, Lord, help us to be true to your word. Help us to learn your word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us every time we come to your word to, to ask for your guidance as we study the word, to ask for your spirit to anoint our study, to anoint our reading, Lord. Whatever we do within your word, we want it to be correct and true. Show us these things, Lord. And Father, we do pray especially for the Greeson family and the loss of uh, Robert's mother and for uh, Doug and Bridget as they... Uh, Doug has lost his sister. We just ask for your blessings on them and comfort for them in this difficult time. Father, again, we just ask you to bless our study today by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. And we'll be in chapter number 2 today. 2 Peter chapter number 2. And we'll be picking up in verse number 1. Some of you remember Alan Blackman, who was here, I guess it was here about a month ago, and uh, he's headed back now to the mission field in, Phil in the Philippines. But this past week, he texted me before he left to let me know that a mutual friend we had, a pastor friend we had, had been sentenced to 15 years in prison for manslaughter for choking what he called his sister wife. He was living in a polygamous relationship with his legal wife and this woman he termed his sister wife, uh, seeing under law they couldn't get married in a polygamous relationship, so he just lived with her as his sister wife. Well, apparently uh, she got frustrated with the relationship and decided to leave and he tried to stop her and they got into an argument and he began to choke her, and he choked her to death and buried her in his backyard. And then moved there, then resigned from his church. He said his father was ill and he needed to go to visit with his father. And so he left the church, resigned from the church, and moved to Arizona. And it was like 10 years later before they finally brought a case against him. And uh, about, 
I believe it was back in May, he confessed to killing the woman and then in a plea agreement so he would get manslaughter in second, instead of second-degree murder, uh, he told them where he had buried her in his own backyard. And I can't believe the police over there uh, didn't, didn't check his backyard, you know, to me. That's kind of obvious. But uh, anyway, to make matters worse, there were members in his church that knew this situation was going on. There were board members in his church that knew he was living in a polygamous relationship. This is a, was a Calvary Chapel pastor. I mean, I mean, it happens to Baptist pastors. It happens to Catholic priests. It happens to, to Calvary Chapel pastors. It happens to all sorts of pastors. And at his, at his sentencing, uh, he made a very telling statement about his whole situation. He said, for so long I've been teaching and living a lie. My whole life is one horrible lie. Now, the really sad thing about this situation is the church was really flourishing. I mean, it was doing really well. I mean, they, were, they had about a 1,000 people show up every week to listen to this man teach. And they trusted his teaching, that his teaching was coming straight from the Word of God. And I knew him, and I heard him preach on several occasions. And if you listened to him preach, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything he said wrong. He preached verse by verse through the Bible, just like we preach here. And, and uh, man, I tell you what, when I heard him preach, I was, he, he was a charismatic preacher. And I was certain that he was preaching under the anointing of God. And on several occasions, I had a chance to talk with him about theology. And man, I love to talk with him about theology because his whole theology was centered on grace. And I believe, I mean, my theology is centered on grace. The Bible's centered on grace. And so we love to talk about the grace of God. But he said some things on occasion that really troubled me. I mean, he said one time to me, he said, you can do anything. A person, a, a Christian's free to do anything as long as they do it in love and they don't hurt anybody. And he said, you know what? I've decided the guy was a great guitar player, one of the best guitar players I've ever heard in my life. And he told me one time when I was talking to him, he said, I've decided I'm going to start playing the guitar in bars and, and, and nightclubs. Because there I can witness to the lost. And I told this pastor, I said, man, you can't do that. I said, you'll hurt your witness. I said, what happens if one of your, you've got this large congregation. What happens if one of the members of your church goes to that bar who's struggling with alcoholism and they see you uh, in the bar playing the guitar and they say to themselves, bars are okay, getting drunk's okay, and they go home and they beat their wife, or they go out and they kill somebody in a car wreck. You're responsible for that. You can't do that. I didn't hear him say it, but Alan told me about a situation they had because Alan was on the board of the church, and he told me about a situation they had where, where uh, there was this couple that was living in a in a affair outside of marriage, and 
Alan wanted him to do something about it, and, and I don't know if that's really the place for the pastor to do that, but, he, but, but what he said really bothered me. He said, as long as they are in love, and as long as they don't hurt anybody, I believe that relationship is okay. So what he was doing, he was taking grace, and he was twisting it. And, and that's the way he was thinking when he entered into this polygamous relationship. He said to himself, you know, it's okay with my wife. And how in the world it would be okay with his wife? I mean, he had a child. He had a child. He had a child with this woman. And apparently his wife watched them conceive this child. That's how sick this thing was. And he said, well, it's okay with my wife. It's okay with my sister wife, my live-in wife. It's, we all love each other. Who's it going to hurt? Oh, wow. How did that work out for you? Who's it going to hurt? I mean, here he was. This guy was living a lie. He was living a lie. He was lying to himself. He was lying to his family. He was lying to his church. And most of all, he was living a lie before God. God Almighty. And did he hurt anybody? Man, he killed somebody. I mean, his wife, now he's got 15 years in prison. His wife is out on her own. Those children are out on their own. You think maybe somebody got hurt? And here was this seemingly vibrant work of God. And you know what? That church doesn't even exist anymore. It's gone because they got such a bad name in the community. Nobody would go there anymore. Now, here's the question. How could so many people be fooled by this man's teaching? I mean, again, he was going verse by verse through the Bible. But really, more importantly, how could he fool himself? I mean, because here's how. Because destructive heresies come through very simple changes in the word of God. Let me put it a different way. Very subtle changes in the word of, in teaching the word of God. Now that's why Peter in our text is going to exhort us today to be keenly aware that there are wolves among us, that there are false teachers among us, that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And that makes them really hard to spot. I'll tell you right now, I'm not one of them. Some of you, I've had people think I am. I don't think I am. But man, it's so scary. That seems like a pretty obvious case that this guy was really deceived. But it's so easy to deceive yourself. And we're going to talk about how you can do that a little bit later. So we're to be on the lookout for false teachers. And, and, and go with me to chapter number 2 and verse number 1. And, and Peter makes that exhortation right there in our text. Listen to what he says. He says, but there are also false teachers among the people, even as there will be false, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even or most importantly, denying the Lord who bought them and bring upon themselves swift, swift destruction. Now, the two interesting Greek words here, 
that are used for false prophets and false teachers. It's pseudo-prophetia and pseudo-didache. In other words, they are pseudo-prophets and they're pseudo-teachers. And usually they're self-appointed. They appoint themselves to teach. God didn't appoint them. God doesn't appoint false teachers. God doesn't appoint false prophets. You read the Old Testament over and over again. There were false prophets who were trying to tickle the people's ears. And they were rebuked by the real prophets. But the people, you know who they listened to? They listened to the false prophets. People want to hear the false prophets because the false prophets tell them what they want to hear. You can do anything you want as long as it's love. You can do anything you want. People want to hear that kind of stuff. And, and they aren't saved, or at least most of them aren't saved. And so they don't interpret things spiritually. They interpret them intellectually, and sometimes their intellect isn't too good. But they interpret them in, intellectually, and, and so uh, they come up with these false interpretations. Remember what Peter told us last week. Look back at those last two verses of chapter number one. Actually, look at the last verse. He says that the Bible is the word of God spoken through holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. And so what we have in the Bible are God's words. We have spiritual words. And so Peter concluded, and I've concluded in my study and by the confirmation of the Holy Spirit in me, that this Bible is a work of God. This is not a work of man. It's not some intellectual piece. It's not some hodgepodge of literature put together very loosely, and some of it's good and some of it's bad. No, every single word of this Bible is inspired by God. And so it's, listen to what he says, jump back to verse 20. He says, therefore, it's not of any private interpretation. In other words, you don't get to interpret it the way you want to interpret it. You don't get to tweak it the way you want to tweak it. It's not open to any private in interpretation. It's interpreted by the Holy Spirit. And so when I look for interpretation in this word, you know what I look for to find my interpretation? I look for other scripture because I want to know how God interprets scripture. And that's how we should always interpret scripture. And listen, if, if you start trying to twist this thing, it's, it all of a sudden becomes your own private interpretation. And we live in a society today and, and a bunch of preachers out there today that are preaching a private inter their own private interpretation of the word. And you got to run from that when you hear that. What people want to do, they want to take this word and tweak it so that it meets their fallen nature and their fallen desires so they can do anything that they want. And you know where most of the fallacies in interpretation are? They're in the way we see Jesus Christ. And that's why he says that he really gives us kind of the mother of all interpretations or, or the mother of all heresies here. Look at, listen to what he says. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you that will secret, secretly bring in destructive heresies. And here's the number one destructive heresy. They will deny the Lord who bought them. And that's where most 
heresy is rooted in the denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think there's anybody in this room will say they don't love Jesus. I mean, how many of y'all love Jesus? We all love Jesus. What Jesus do you love? See, you can love a Jesus and not love the true Jesus. And that's where heresy begins. When we make Jesus something else other than almighty God. Paul warned about these wolves over in Acts chapter 20. Go with me there for a minute in Acts chapter 20. And he gives this warning. He's about to go to Jerusalem. He's not far from losing his, or actually being arrested and put into prison. But he's about to go to Jerusalem and he sees these Ephesian pastors for this one last time. And he wants to give them the best advice he possibly can give them. And so this is what he says to them. If you go to Acts chapter 20, go down to verse number 28 and listen to what he says. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves. In other words, don't twist the gospel yourself. Take heed to yourself. Pay attention. I mean, pay attention to your faith. Keep the faith. And take heed to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit, catch who does this, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word bishop. When we get Episcopus, an Episcopalian, it's actually Episcopus is the word. And it means, that's what it means. It means an overseer, a lookout. You're to be a lookout to shepherd the church, poeman, to shepherd the church. You're to pastor the church of God, watch this, which he purchased with his own blood. How important is the church of God to God? He purchased the church with his own blood. Let, let, me, let me read that to you because it's a really interesting wording here if you look at it literally in the Greek. And I'm not going to read you the Greek, but I'll read to you how this reads literally. It says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherd of the church, which he purchased with his own blood. Now wait a minute. Does the Holy Spirit have blood? Does God have blood? The Spirit of... Who's he speaking of here? He's speaking of Jesus Christ. He's the one who, who uh, spent his blood for the church. And the, God, the word God there, theos, is actually theo, and so, it, so it, it, it's in the genitive, and I don't want to bore you with that kind of stuff, but let me give you what it literally says there. It says, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds of the church, which he purchased with the blood of God. Literally, theos amato. He purchased it with the blood of God. What was dripping down that cross when Jesus hung on that cross? What was dripping down that cross? You know what was dripping down that cross? The blood of Almighty God. That's why we say there's power in the blood. There's power in the blood because the blood is the blood of God. And you got to ask yourself, how much does God love you? 
that he would give you his own blood, that he would shed his own blood for you. Then in verse number 29, he says, but most people, most people aren't going to teach you this way. He says, for, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. They won't teach you the way I've been teaching you. They won't teach you the things I've taught you. They will be Judaizers and legalists and antinomians, and they will come in with all sorts of heresy, and they will deny the power of the Lord. But they're savage wolves, and they won't spare the flock. They want to take the flock down with them. I mean, savage wolves can be preachers, they can be prophets, they can be pastors, they can be priests, they can be laymen. Man, I know a lot of laymen that'll come into a church and they'll do everything they can to destroy the doctrine of that church. They want to take you down with them. And how do you spot them? Listen to what he says in verse number 30. Also from, not spare the flock, also from among yourselves men will rise up right there in the midst of the church speaking perverse things. Let me reword that, misleading things. Subtle changes in the word of God. To, and here's their purpose. Here's how you can spot them. They want to draw away disciples for themselves. That's how you can, that's the best way to spot somebody who is a false teacher. They don't want to make you disciples of Jesus Christ. Their passion is not for Jesus Christ. Their passion is for themselves. They want to make you disciples of themselves. And they see the church as their own little kingdom, and they want to be, you know, they want to be lifting themselves up. And they want to be, they think they're special people who deserve special treatment. When you see that, more than likely you're in the hands of a false teacher. Or you've got a false teacher in your Myths. Then, as I said earlier, going back to Second Peter, back in Second Peter, if I can get back there, did y'all find it? <laughs> y'all are quicker than me. Back in Second Peter, chapter two, Peter puts in a different way, or rewords it a little bit. He calls it destructive heresies. They bring in destructive heresies. And as I said, the mother of all heresies is that they deny that Jesus is Lord. Now that's an interesting word for Lord there. Normally the Greek word for Lord is the word curious. We see that throughout the New Testament. K-U-R-I-O-U-S in the Greek. Curious. But this word is different. It's the Greek word despotos, a, a different word. We get our English word what from that? Despot. What's a despot? A despot is someone with ultimate power. You can have, we think of despot, we think of it in the connotation of being bad because we're a democracy and we feel that if anybody takes over power, one person takes over power, then that's a bad thing. Man, I, I, more and more I'm hanging around. I don't think democracy is such a good thing. Democracy is a great thing when you've got Christian people voting, but when you've got a bunch of evil people voting, you're going to end up with evil leaders. And so, and, and eventually what you end up there, you end up with a despot. You end up with a dictator. Every nation that, as their democracy decays, every nation it becomes more and more, or, or, or gets more and more tyrannical leaders until the point where they end up with one leader and that person is a despot. 
He's a dictator. Well, I've got news for you. When Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth, he is a despot. When he sits on his throne right now, he is a despot. If you don't like him, tough, tough. He still loves you, but if you don't love him, tough. He's going he's to do what he wants to do. You know, the more and more I pray, I realize that God's going to do what he wants to do and not what I want him to do. I used to think, man, if you could just pray long enough, you could get God to change his mind. You can't do it. What he does, he changes your mind while you're praying. He's a despot. He's a despot. He has ultimate power. And if you're a born-again believer, you have submitted to that ultimate power. And where heresies come in is when we deny his ultimate power. And the most obvious way we deny his power is we deny that Jesus is God. We deny that he's God. And, and so uh, we end up in all sorts of trouble when we do that. Now, I, I stand firm on this. I, like I told, said maybe last week, you could take, a, take me and put me on the torture rack and I would immediately maybe probably, I wouldn't go too long before I said, oh, I don't believe in the Lord. But deep down inside, you can't change the fact that I believe that Jesus is God because the Holy Spirit confirms that fact. No man calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Nobody understands he's Jehovah God except by the Holy Spirit. And I get these people all the time that come in and they say, well, you know, Jesus is, Jesus, they're hyper-Trinitarians. And they say, yeah, Jesus is God, but he's not Jehovah God. He's less than God. I was talking, so I was arguing with somebody the other night about that, and, and, and I said, I said, uh, I said, well, how do you handle the fact in Isaiah when it says wonderful counselor? I said, who's that speaking of? It's speaking of, he said, that's speaking of Jesus. I said, okay. But it says they're everlasting father. I said, how do you handle that? How do you handle that situation? He said, well, that's what you call a Hebrew idiom. I said, I said, where did you learn that? He said, from Jimmy Swagger. I said, I don't, well, I, I'm not getting on Jimmy Swagger, but I wouldn't get my theology from Jimmy Swagger. But I said, don't you understand what you're doing? That is a private interpretation. If I take that kind of hermeneutic and apply it to this text, and I interpret things, and every time I don't, it doesn't fit my theology, I call it a Hebrew idiom or a Greek idiom, you know, I can I can make this thing say anything I want. The there's no no evidence whatsoever that any of this Bible is an idiom. The Bible is the Word of God. If the Word says He's wonderful Counsel, Emmanuel, God with us, everlasting Father, guess what? He is everlasting Father, and you can't change that. But people want to do that. When I was a young boy, that's a long time ago, by the way. Like, what are y'all laughing at? It wasn't that long ago. I mean, back in the days of the covered wagons and, and the Indians and stuff like that. When I was a young boy, I went to church all the time. 
And I listened to the teachers in the particular denomination I belonged to, and there were some really good teachers there. And, I, and I'm not getting on these teachers because sometimes you receive things differently from the way the teacher intends them to be received. But after listening to the teachers in this particular denomination for several years, I developed a concept of Jesus Christ that he was some kind of lesser God that somehow because he was the son of God, that he was like Matt is, I mean, like Eli is my son. Eli is my son. And we have similar characteristics. But I'm the father, he's the son, and he's a totally different person from I am, than I am. Uh, he, even though we have similarities, he's a totally different person from I am, but we're, I mean, we're different people. Well, also developed, if you start looking at it that way, I, I developed this concept of Jesus Christ that he was, has, hadn't always existed. That he was born in Bethlehem and he didn't exist before Bethlehem. And, and so that was kind of my concept of Jesus Christ. But when I got saved, I immediately knew that Jesus is God, that he's almighty God. Now, I believe in the Trinity. Don't get me wrong. I'm a Trinitarian. I believe that God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as Jesus said in John chapter 14, I believe it was John chapter 14, maybe John chapter 10, he said, I and the Father are one. Literally what he says, you know what he says? He says, I am the Father, we are. You know, instead of I am, he said we are. And then he adds, we are what? He adds the one. And that matched up all of a sudden when I, when I under, when I read that, I was so excited about that because that matched up. It didn't contradict the Shema. The Shema in Deuteronomy chapter six says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Jehovah is one, one God. Well, I, you know, I know the standard comeback for that. You know what the standard comeback is? For when, when you say the Lord is one, what the standard comeback is, he's one in unity. That word means unity. That's a private interpretation. That's a misleading interpretation. Let me tell you one of the best tools you can have if you want to be a Berean Bible student. Get you an Englishman's concordance. What an Englishman's concordance does, it takes the word and it finds how that word is used, that Hebrew word or that Greek word is used elsewhere. And what you can do, you can take the Hebrew word one where in the Shema in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy and you can go and look and see how it's used elsewhere if you want to get the biblical meaning because the Hebrew words have a broad range of meaning. I'll give them that and you got to be careful with that. But how did the biblical writers use that word? And I want to find that out. So I go to an Englishman, Englishman's concordance and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one and go look. You pull that up and then you can look up that one and see where else it's used throughout the Bible. Let me give you one example. Adam had one rib. Adam, no, God took, I'm sorry, God took one rib from Adam to make Eve. One rib. Was that unity? That got anything to do with unity? Before Babel, before the Tower of Babel, the Genesis says there was one language. 
one language. Is that anything to do with unity? No, it's one. It means one. There's, the Bible talks about one pit, one dog, I mean, not dog, but one sheep, one, one. Guess what Hebrew means? I mean, what, what one means in Hebrew? One. And if you start changing those things with your private interpretation, you can make it fit any theology you want. That's, you want. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. That's what the Mormons do. And they get themselves into all sorts of trouble when they do that. That's the heresy that the devil loves to permeate the church with. That somehow Jesus is less the despotos. Somehow he's less than curios. Somehow he's less than Jehovah. And if he can get you to believe that, you're still in your sin. Because let me tell you something. If you don't believe that that's the blood of God coming down from that cross, dying for your sins, for the infinite sins of this world, that if the infinite God died for your infinite sins, then you're still lost. Because only God Almighty could die for the sins of the world, the whole world. Think of all the sins. All the sins, the sins that we've committed as a human race are more than the, the, the sand on the seashore, the pebbles on the seashore. All the grains of sand on the seashore. And so only God could pay for our sin. And only God can save you. And only God can sanctify you. Only Jesus can do that. And that leads to the second heresy that comes from not recognizing Jesus as God, and that is legalism. Legalism. When we don't see the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to sanctify us and to glorify us, we fall into legalism. That's why we fall into legalism. In other words, man, Lord, you can't fix me. You can't fix my temper. You can't fix my depression. You can't fix this. You can't fix that. You can't fix this. I got to fix it myself. You can't fix my bad habits. I got to fix them myself. And so we fall into legalism. One of the most popular preachers in the United States He's an evangelical preacher, and I'm not going to name his name, but I have heard him over and over and over again say that as Christians we are still under the Ten Commandments. We are still under law. And he bases that on verses like Matthew 5.18. Actually, that's his, his main verse he uses for, for justifying that belief. And, and that's the verse where Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not one yod or one tittle of this law uh, will pass away until everything's fulfilled. Not one yod, little mar this little mark or that little mark of the Hebrew, a yod and a tittle of the smallest little marks in Hebrew. Not one of those will pass away until everything is fulfilled. But Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Now who's right? Is Jesus right 
Well, he's right. You better believe he's right. Is Paul right? Who spoke through Paul the words that Paul wrote? Jesus did. Jesus not, he's not schizophrenic. They're both right. Paul didn't say, Paul didn't say that uh, Christ is the end of the law to everybody. He says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. If you don't believe, let me tell you what, you're still under law. The law isn't going away. Before you were born again, you were under law. I mean, you either did the law or you were punished for not, you either kept the law or you were punished for not keeping the law. You were, if you die in your sin, without the blood of Christ covered you, then you'll spend eternity in hell. So everybody who's not born again is still under law. Now, I also believe as believers to some degree were under law because Paul says, what's the purpose of the law? The law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. So if as a believer, you kind of drift from Christ, guess what's going to happen? You're going to come back under law. I mean, you're going to, I mean, you're not going to be judged, but condemned by the law or judged by the law, but you're going to come back under the, the rod of the law. And God's going to have to discipline you to get you back into grace, back into a, to your, where you need to be, uh, with the Lord. So that's how the law functions. I mean, the, the, the law has a purpose. In other words, it shows you God's standard and we can't keep God's standard. And so what do we do? Well, there's only one thing we can do, and that's to give our lives to the Lord, to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can save us. He's the only one who can fix us. But you're not under law. Paul says this in, in Colossians chapter 2. He says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive. He's given you life. He's given you his life. Together with him, having been forgiven, what? All your trespasses. Now, you can twist that all you want, and people twist that. They come up with a private interpretation. But when, when the Bible says you've been forgiven all your trespasses, what's all mean? All of them. Past, present, and future. People tell you not forgiven your future sins. You know that somehow, you know, you're going to be punished in this life for your, your present sins and your future sins. Don't believe them. You've been forgiven all your sins. Now, if you're trying to bring yourself or pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and fix your broken nature by yourself, then you're not recognizing Jesus as Lord. Who's still in charge? You're still in charge. In other words, we have to come to the point where we say to ourselves, it's not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I live now, I live under Christ, by Christ. We don't, we don't live this life, this Christian life on our own. We live it by the power of Jesus Christ. And if we're still acting as Lord over our lives, you know what we're doing? And we're trying to fix our own more broken moral nature. You know what we're doing? We're trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul's pretty bold about it, or pretty frank about it in Galatians chapter uh, 2. He says, I do not set aside the grace 
of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if you're trying to become righteous through the law, then the Christ is doing you no good. He died in vain for you, and you're still under the law, and you're going to be condemned by the law. So we're not under law. We're no longer under law. Christ is the end of law for righteousness. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. That doesn't seem to make sense. If there's no law, that means we can do anything we want to do. Man, I'm going out and I'm getting, I'm going party time tonight. I'm going to do some things I hadn't done since I was a teenager. Now, that's not what he's saying here. I, I mean, it sounds like, you know, when you say Christ is the end of the law, that we're in the danger, in the same danger as my pastor friend was in. We're in the danger of getting into all sorts of trouble. And that leads us to the third main heresy that is rooted in denying Jesus as Lord. And that is antinomianism. You like that term? Write that down. Antinomianism. You want to be a theologian, you better be writing that down. Y'all don't want to be theologians? Well, let me make Greek scholars out of you then. Anti means what? Against. Nomian means what? Law. That's just a big word for a simple concept. We're against the law. We're not against the law. But that's a heresy. It's called antinomianism. Against the law. All right, now, let me find my place here. This was the era that my pastor friend was making. This idea that somehow, that if we're under grace, we're no longer subject to any kind of moral law. That's antinomianism. I've had people, lots of people, accuse me of being antinomian against the law because I do teach grace. I read, I read the Bible, and I, I, it's not subject to any private interpretation. It's not some uh, Greek idiom. Paul says Christ is the end of the law. I mean, I don't care how you interpret that in the Greek. You know what that means? Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. So, you, you can see where people, when you say that, they see the dangers in saying that hey, you're inviting people to sin when you say that, Pastor. No, I'm not. I'm not against the law. If I said earlier, the law is still in effect for those who don't believe, but we're believers. And Paul was charged with the same thing. He was accused of being antinomian. Remember how he answered that? He, 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 these people were accusing him of that, and he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Meganetto, may it never be. I mean, how should we who died to sin live in it any longer? He understood what it meant that we're able to do what we want to do. You understand? How can we live in sin? If you've been born again, how can you want to live in sin? See, don't you understand as Spurgeon said, when you get saved, you can do anything you want because what you want to do is has been changed, and what you want to do is to be pleasing to the Lord? Let me say this, and I'll say this 
in all candor. If you still want to sin, you are not born again. You don't have the new nature. I mean, if, if you still love the sin, you don't have the new nature. Now, your flesh loves it, but you don't love it. You hate the evil in this world. You hate evil things. You might fall into evil at times, but you hate them. If you still love that stuff, you know, I might go watch a, a, a movie and there's all sorts of bad language in it, and, I, and, and, and I, I'm not under law. All things are lawful, but all things don't edify. I go to that movie and I hear some of the things they say and then I say to myself, I don't like that. Before I was saved, I liked that. didn't bother me a bit. But I've been changed. I've been changed. Well, wait a minute, isn't that what your pastor friend said? He, didn't he say, you know, uh, if we, if we, as long as we do it in love, we could do anything we want, want to do? No, I didn't say that. He said we could do anything. There's a big difference. As a Christian, you can't do anything. You can do anything you want to do, your new nature wants to do. It's a big difference. We're not free to do anything. The, the, the Bible doesn't teach that we're free to do any, anything. When we were saved, we received a new nature. And the law becomes who we are. The Ten Commandments are written on our heart and on our minds. We want to live for God. We want to rest in God. We want to worship God. We don't want any other gods before us. We don't want to murder. We don't want to steal. We don't want to covet. We don't want to commit adultery. We don't want to do any of those things. Sure, we might fall into that sin sometime, but we don't want to do those things. We want to live for Jesus Christ. So, when we live in sin, we're denying Jesus as our Lord, as our despotos, as our ultimate God. Our, God means God. God means Lord. They're interchangeable. That means he is all in all. He's everything to us. He's our Lord. That means he has, we are responsible to live for him. We're responsible for everything we do before him. And if I've been born again and Jesus is my Lord, then, then, then I don't want to live in sin. I want to live for him. I, you know what? We are the temple of the despotos. We are his temple if we're born again. Look, if you're here today and the Lord's up there in heaven and, and, and you're down here all by yourself, I've got news for you, you're not born again. If you're born again, where does the Lord live? He lives right here. Christ in you, your hope of glory. The despotos lives right here. The curios lives right here. Jehovah lives right here. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father lives right here in your heart. And we want to be like Him. We don't want to live like we used to live. So when anybody comes to you and they deny the Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, look, I don't believe like some people believe that you've got to make Jesus Lord of every part of your life before you're saved because you, 
How many of you have given Jesus every single bit of your soul and heart and mind? Don't raise your hand, because then you would be lying. You can't, none of us would ever get saved. But I'll tell you this, you want to make him Lord. Change my heart, oh God. Make me more like you. And that's what, that's, that's our heart's desire. We want to be like the Lord if we're truly born again. And if anybody teaches Jesus as anything but Lord of God Almighty, then get as far away from them as you possibly can. For as Peter says, look at the last part of this verse. He says, the Lord who bought them and, let me go back. These sentences don't make sense if you don't read the whole thing, and they write some long sentences. But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves. Look at this last part. Swift destruction. Swift destruction. They're going to be destroyed very swiftly. And if you follow those people, you're going to be destroyed very swiftly. Now, swiftly in God's eyes and swiftly in my eyes are two different things. It took them 11 years before my pastor's friend's life was destroyed, before they got caught him, brought him back to justice, and put him in jail. 11 years. Just like that to the Lord. Lord's patient. Just because, you, as Solomon says in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, just because the punishment of a sin isn't executed immediately doesn't mean it's not going to be executed. If you sin, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, every sin is destruction. Sin causes destruction. What's wrong if you, you know, what's wrong if I live in a relationship with a, with a, uh, 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 a woman and I'm not married to her as long as none of us get hurt. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get hurt. Sin causes destruction. And people who teach people to sin are going to get a very swift paddle to the rear. They're going to have very, a very swift destruction. So don't hang out with people like that. It's not healthy. Oh, wait, we got a lot more to go. We just got one verse. No, we'll, we'll stop here. Goodness, one verse, that's it. So what's Peter telling us here? What did Paul tell us over and tell the pastors over in Acts chapter 20? He's telling us, look out for the wolves. Look out for those wolves because they are among us. They are in the church. You would think Calvary Chapel, I think of Calvary Chapel as a great movement of God. You would think it would be immune from the presence of any wolf. But they're here. But let me tell you about maybe the most dangerous wolf as we close. This dangerous wolf that's lurking around. You know where he, you know who that wolf is? Sometimes our own self. Our own self. You know, you might not, man, you might be really 
strong in this word and you might study this word all the time and you might, you know, try to let God interpret what he wants to interpret here and you don't come up with any private interpretation and you do your very best. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't fit your lifestyle. And so you quit reading those verses that don't fit your lifestyle. Or you take them, some people take them out of the Bible and print new Bibles without those verses that don't fit their lifestyle. And you know what happens when you do that? You become a wolf. I mean, if, if, if you somehow don't want to stop your bad habit, let's say you're a drunkard and you don't want to stop that. So what you do, you find verses in here that, and you twist the ones where it says that, you know, drunkard, drunkards won't inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to read that verse anymore. Or you're a homosexual and you say to yourself, well, I don't agree that homosexuality is a is an abomination to the Lord, so I'm not going to read the Old Testament anymore. Well, you can't read the New Testament either because it says that in Romans 1, too. And, and I mean, we can, uh, gossip, you know, well, man, gossip really isn't a big sin. There's, there's, you know, there's big sins and there's little sins, and God's okay with the little sins, but he, but, but, uh, you know, the big sins are the ones we got to keep from uh, committing. You understand what we're doing when we're doing that? We're coming up with our own private interpretation. We're changing the word of God. Every single word of this Bible is the word of God. And we're responsible to God for what he's given us in this word. And we don't have the privilege of changing any of it. And if we do change it, you know what we make ourselves? We make ourselves wolves. Does that mean we, we lose our salvation? No. You know, I actually believe my pastor friend is saved. I actually believe that. But what he did, he changed the word, his teaching of the word, to meet his lifestyle. And that's a danger we all face danger I think we all uh, can fall into if we're not very careful let the word speak for the word let's go to the Lord in prayer Father we just thank you for your goodness we thank you for your holy word we thank you that Jesus Christ spoke this word. He is the word. He is our creator. He is our savior. And Lord, if we'll stay close to you, if we'll just stay close to you and hear your word as you speak it by your spirit, we'll be just fine. Lord, your spirit will let us know when there's false doctrine being taught. Your spirit will let us know when there's wolves among us. And your spirit will let us know when we're acting like wolves ourselves and coming up with our own private interpretation for your word. So, Lord, we thank you that we can trust you. We can trust your spirit to be our teacher and our guide as we study your word and as we live this life with Jesus as our, our des 
Petas, our Lord and Savior. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.